All these different reports, there are people on one side of the spectrum that are saying, as that guy says in the video, this is way overhyped. Other people on the other end of the spectrum, like World Health Organization, CDC, they're saying this could potentially be something. But as we go into the scriptures this morning, I'm going to draw your attention to Luke chapter 7. And it's amazing how God's Word relates to the world that we're living in so readily, so apparently. Because I don't know about you, as I watch this news cycle, as I watch the panic, I'm reminded, once again, that death puts fear into the hearts of all people because death shows no partiality. It doesn't matter where you live in the world. You could live in China. You could live in Italy, Iran. Uh, you could live in the United States of America. And death is not a friend to any particular country. Death doesn't care if you have influence or affluence. There's an old American folk song uh, that's titled, O oh Death, and it captures this dynamic as a singer is talking and having a conversation with death. Uh, the, the singer bemoans in one verse, he says, O oh death, please consider my age. Please don't take me at this stage. My wealth is all at your command if you will move your icy hand. And death responds in the next verse, The old, the young, the rich, or poor, all alike to me you know. No wealth, no land, no silver, no gold. Nothing satisfies me but your soul. We don't like to talk about this topic. We don't like to think about it. It's a subject where we have created many euphemisms so that we can avoid the, the direct conversation about death. But minimizing death, denying death, shoving it off to the side does nothing to stave off the effects of death. It, it really is true. Death comes to all of us, and no one in this room, no one in world health organizations, no one in governmental posts has the authority or the power to tell death to stop. Now, it's interesting as we think about that as we enter into our passage this morning, because this morning we're going to see Jesus interact with death in two separate stories. Now, the first story Jesus interacts with death in the sense of death is looming with a person. And in the second story this morning, we're going to see that death has already struck. And both encounters that Jesus has with death in this story are remarkable. And my prayer is as we look at this together, as we look at this in light of world events, that our hearts will be filled with hope particularly as we, if we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to introduce you to that hope this morning. So let's begin with our first point, the first part of the pa passage, remarkable faith. And we pick up at Luke 7, verses 1 through 3. After Jesus had finished all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent for him, uh, to him, elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. So here we have the next movements in the ministry of Jesus. He's in Capernaum, which is home base. It's his center of operations in his Galilean ministry. 
And as he comes back home, he's met by a contingent of Jewish leaders who ask him an odd request. They ask Jesus to help a centurion. Now, in case you don't know the background here, the Jews hated centurions. Why? Because they were an occupying presence in their country. Just imagine how you would feel towards another nation that set up posts all over our country and was telling us what to do. But here we have this centurion that they look at differently. Now we see this in a couple of different ways why this centurion is different in their eyes. One is just simply the way that he treats this servant in the passage. Uh, you have to get into their world a little bit and understand how regular and reoccurring death is for them, how accustomed they are to people dying. For them, you know, longevity was considered what we would consider today middle-aged. And so, what's one more person, right, in this world of reoccurring death, especially when you realize that Romans were notorious for mistreating their slaves? I mean, what is a slave to a a Roman who would send slaves off to be beaten, uh, who would send them to prison, and worse of all, would have slaves crucified. And yet, this centurion seems different. Luke says he valued the servant. He didn't look at this servant as a tool. He recognized his humanity and cared for him. The Bible also suggests that this centurion is a God-fearer, which means that he recognizes something about the Jewish God, even though he may not go the full step of taking on a Jewish identity. And you see that in verse 4 when the elders say, He's worthy. He's worthy to have you do this for Him, for He loves our nations and He's the one who built our synagogue. I just got to stop there for a minute. That's an interesting thing to say to Jesus. This guy's worthy, they say. Clearly, these Jewish leaders miss something about what Jesus is looking for from people. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not interested in our worthiness. Uh, Building synagogues, holding to a Jewish nationalism. These are all external solutions when it comes to people being made right with God. Those are the kind of things that impress us. We get all excited about these kind of things, but those are the kind of things that God looks at and says, eh, I don't really care that much about them. Because Jesus, the Son of God, didn't come into the world to live a life we couldn't live, die on the cross because we are mostly okay. Jesus didn't come in here because we're people with just a little fever who need a little bit of Tylenol to make ourselves better. No, we are like the sick servant in this passage. And so, you know, adding some things into our life to be right with God, like going to church a little bit more or trying to be kind to people or giving a few dollars every year to charitable things or trying to clean up my language a little bit. Friends, that's like giving a mortally wounded person Tylenol and walking away and hoping everything will be okay. But the Jewish leaders, they didn't understand this. 
They were happy with the Tylenol remedy. This guy's good. He's a good guy. He's done good things for us. You should do this for him. Now, it's interesting that the centurion doesn't see his worthiness in that way. Look at verses 6-8 through eight as Jesus is approached by some friends of this centurion and listen to the centurion's words to Jesus. He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and what does he do? He goes. And to another, come, and he comes. I say to a servant, do this, and he does it. And in the next verse, Luke shows us that Jesus is stunned by this response. It tells us this, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that's following him, he says, I tell you, not in Israel have I found such faith as this. And then verse 10 is almost like an afterthought. Oh yeah, he gets healed and it's all good. Because Luke is stuck on verse 9. Now when you look in the Scriptures at marveling, when it comes to Jesus, this is an interesting dynamic. Jesus goes about doing his ministry and people right and left marvel at him. They marvel at his works. They marvel at his words. They marvel at his authority. But Jesus does not tend to marvel at people. In fact, in all of the Gospels, there's only two instances of Jesus marveling. The first occurrence was back in Nazareth. Mark 6, 6 says that Jesus marveled at his hometown's unbelief. In this passage now, Jesus marvels at the remarkable faith of the centurion. So I hope you see the distinction between the Jewish leaders and the centurion. Jesus is not interested in your worthiness, but he is intensely interested in your faith. Why does he care about faith? Because faith sees Jesus. Faith sees his worthiness, his ability to take care of the situation. Faith sees reality as it really is. And that's what the centurion sees. He uses this rhetorical device as he talks of Jesus' authority. The device is called from the weightier to the lighter. The idea here is he sees his own authority, which is a much lesser form of authority, and then he sees Jesus' authority, which is much weightier. You have to understand the authority that this centurion has. He has absolute command over 100 soldiers, which is 10 platoons. Anybody who's done military service understands the importance of obeying an order. And they would even say that these centurions were probably the most important component of Rome's military strategy because they maintain a sharp discipline within the individual soldiers throughout all of the army. So the centurion says to a soldier, jump, and the soldier asks, well, how high do you want me to jump or dig a ditch? How deep do you want me to go? How wide do you want the ditch to go? 
He can say things in all kinds of different contexts, and people stop what they're doing and they obey. But there's a slight problem with his authority. He can't walk up to this servant and say, Get better. I command you to get better. He could say that all day, every day, until he's red in the face, and the servant's not going to get off the bed and get better. In fact, it's when we realize just how helpless we are, just how out of control we are, that we see Jesus' authority. Because he's heard stories about this Jesus. He's seen people who have been touched by the life of Jesus, and he's come to a clear recognition about Jesus that he has the ability to prevent this death from happening. And so not only does he invite Jesus to his house, but then he has a second thought, and he says, you know what? I've seen so much about this Jesus that he doesn't even need to come to my house. In fact, Jesus, I think you could just say the word from where you are, and this servant will be healed. So it's not a matter or a question in the centurion's mind of if this can happen. It's a matter in his mind of will Jesus do it? Now friends, that is remarkable faith. He doesn't just pontificate. He doesn't just say, ah, yes, miracles. Oh, I believe in miracles. I've heard third hand that miracles happen in certain places in the world. He's not pontificating about this. He's convinced. He's so convinced that he tells him not to come to his house. So convinced that he bets the life of the servant who he cares deeply about on Jesus' power. Again, that is remarkable faith. But here's the thing. It is not blind faith. You see, blind faith is not biblical faith. Any form of religion that says, don't get confused over the facts, just believe, you should be wary of. I remember when I was doing some mission work in college in Slovakia and I met a student who was a college student there from India. And we were having a pretty robust spiritual conversation. And he just came right out and said to me, you know, I have some deep questions about my faith. And when I go to our spiritual gurus and I ask them to kind of help solve this confusion, this dilemma for me, they say to me, they say, don't ask questions anymore, just believe. And I was a little more forceful than I should have been. I said, well, maybe they're saying that to you because they aren't convinced of what they are teaching you either. You see, a faith that says ask no questions is not faith at all. Church, never say to a new believer or someone who's questioning the faith, exploring the faith, don't ask any questions. That's not biblical faith. Biblical Christianity is not afraid of good questions. Faith asks solid questions. It's built upon a foundation of evidence. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith shows the reality of what is what we hope for. It is the evidence of the things we cannot see. Jesus is not interested in a vapid followership where we're walking around with our brains in our hands just saying, tell me what to do. I'll believe anything that I'm told. 
He did not come to earth. God did not become man and live a real life and perform miracles in reality in front of real people in the historical context so that we would follow him in that sort of way. He did those things so that we would be confident and assured, the Bible says. And like the centurion, we connect the dots. We say to ourselves, well, that's all I need to see. This Jesus is the real deal. This is a legitimate faith. This is happening in the context of history. And also like the centurion, we have to come to a place where we're not following Jesus blindly, but we're not also being so scrutinizing of it that we never stop asking questions. You know, some of you in this whole faith dynamic are stuck right now because you just never stop asking questions. There has to come a point if faith is involved where we've legitimized it, we've weighed the evidence, and now we're saying, you know, enough's enough. I've heard enough. I believe. And this is what I've come to realize. That faith is everything that God is looking for from us. Now, I could have told you when I was 18 years old, I could have intellectually assented to that, but only in the last four or five years am I becoming more and more convinced of this reality. I'm convinced of the reality that God is looking for new steps of faith from you every single day. Every day. I'm convinced that every day is about that. That when God says, trust me for something, it's my job to trust him. When God says, you know, I need you to hand this area over of your life to me, whether it is my sex life or how I am speaking about people or how I am using my time, whatever it is, I am convinced that that faith step is crucial in this life. And I'm also convinced that when I do what he says by faith, it is always better for me than when I do what I want to do. You see, when you stop taking those steps of faith, everything stops working in your spiritual life. When you, when you just say to God, God, I'm going to do my things, that, that's what creates the dynamic where you're coming to church and maybe you come once a month or a couple of times a year, a couple of times a month, whatever it is, and, and you're showing up to church and you're asking the question, where is God? Where is His power? Where is His presence? But here's the deal. God's presence is wherever there is faith. God's movement is wherever there is faith. God's power is wherever there is faith. And it all comes to a screeching halt when you stop taking those steps of faith. Because you're not giving the Holy Spirit anything to work with. Faith is His fuel for changing your life. Now how do we know if this whole faith thing is legitimate? How do I know that I can trust Jesus with my life. When it comes to trust, there are two big questions that we ask of anyone. The first question we ask is, are they good? Right? If I'm trusting someone, I'm opening myself up to be vulnerable with them. So if they are not good, I don't want to entrust myself to them. 
The second question we are asking is, are they powerful or able or capable to do what I, I am trusting them to do? Now let's think about this for a minute. When it comes to having a dog or something like that, that you want to be a guard dog and protect you from a home invasion, which would you choose, a chihuahua or a German shepherd? Now, chihuahuas are great family dogs. Some might even go so far as to say that they are good, which I don't know. They're cute, they're cuddly, but when that guy comes into my house for a home invasion, the only thing that that dog can do is obnoxiously bark at the person, grit their teeth at them, bare their teeth at them, and then as he makes any threatening step in the dog's direction, that thing's running and leaving you. And those things are incredibly puntable, just so you know. No. When it comes down to it, Give me a German Shepherd. Give me a Rottweiler. Give me a Doberman Pinscher when stuff is about to go down, right? So in our next story, Luke shows us that Jesus is worthy of your trust because he is a remarkable Lord. He is remarkable because he's incredibly compassionate. Look at verses 11 and 13. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. So now we've moved location. We've come down from Capernaum, 25 miles. We're in Nain. It's about six miles from the place that Jesus originated from, Nazareth, or his hometown, as they would call it. And as he comes into this city of Nain, there's a large crowd following him, and this crowd intersects with a funeral procession. There's a, a young man who's laid out on a plank. He's probably just died that day. They didn't embalm people then, so you had about 24 hours to bury them. He's wrapped in linens. He's just been anointed. And all of these people, family, friends, uh, well-wishers from the community are there in support of this widow. Now, I want you to notice where the emphasis is on in this verse. It's not on the dead boy. It's on the sad mother. It says she was a widow. The crowd was with her. When Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her. He said to her, do not weep. She's husbandless. She's sonless. This is the worst day of her life. Everything on this march as she's taking her son to the site of burial has no future written all over it. And, and even though there's this crowd of people that are surrounding her, even people kindly carrying the plank with her son on it, they can do nothing to lessen her maternal sorrow. In fact, as you look at this whole scene here, she is the epitome of sadness and loneliness. 
But she's also the epitome of what Jesus has come into the world to save. The kind of person. Do you remember his missional messianic mandate that he declared earlier in Luke? Well, let me remind you of it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so here in this passage, Jesus is fulfilling that mandate. He sees her, the Bible says, and He stops. He stops. Okay, think about someone with Jesus' level now of fame. He's gone viral. There's people surrounding him all the time. He always has more things on his plate than he can possibly accomplish in a single day. And the Bible says he does what? He stops. Friends, we worship a compassionate Lord because the very mandate of Jesus was to touch and intersect with broken lives just like this widow. And some of you here today need to hear that, that He is a compassionate Lord because you come into this place feeling as though there's not a person in the world who really knows you, really understands your situation, and is really able to help you. There's, there's a sadness in a a loneliness in your heart that is almost paralyzing down to the core of your being. And I'm here to tell you today from Luke chapter 7, Jesus sees you and His heart goes out to you. That God came into the world for people just like you. And I also want you to see the goodness of God in this passage. Because one of the big questions we ask of God is, why do bad things happen in this world? You know, we're looking at a news cycle with coronavirus, and again, we don't know what's going to happen here, but anytime we think of or face human tragedy, we're asking that question, why? And I don't have time this morning to delve into the depths of that theology, but I do want to expose you to the heart of God. And if you're asking that question, you need to look up good answers. And there are incredible Christian writings that explain this. Get into it. And we don't know everything, do we? We can't answer every question because God is infinite and I'm finite. But I can look at the Scriptures at Luke chapter 7 and recognize the goodness of God written all over the face of Jesus. What do we know about God in this passage? God does not delight in widows burying their son. God does not take any pleasure in human tragedy taking place on the face of the earth. In fact, he feels a deep compassion for the ravages of sin's effect in this world. And if you were to ask anyone in a million people who cares most about these types of things, no one hates the effects of sin more than Jesus does. No one despises death more than a compassionate Lord, who created the universe, who created planet earth and imbued it with His goodness and intended it for life. 
Do you see what we're saying here this morning? The reality is, is that God takes no pleasure in suffering. Zero. Zilch. Lamentations 3, 31 and 33. For no one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he also shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love. For he does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. And think about this. Why would Jesus come into the world if not to bear suffering upon himself so that he might reverse the effects of sin? That's why he came. He came for this widow. He came for people like you. Now, if this is how Jesus is, if Jesus is remarkably compassionate, he also intends for you, his follower, to be. If he's the kind of Lord who stops, he also intends for you to stop at the misery of others. Have you ever noticed how consumed we are with our own little world right now? I mean, we're just so busy. We're just, we're just so busy. I, I talk to people all the time. How are you doing? I'm busy. What's going on? You're like, busy. What are you thinking about right now? Busy. And we're so busy that we have lost the awareness to see the needs of others around us. I was struck by the core this week on this thought I was reading and meditating on Proverbs 3. And for the first time, I noticed something from this passage, that there is a direct corollary between biblical wisdom and the softness of our hearts toward people. Now Solomon explains, tells about wisdom in Proverbs 3.13. He says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. And then he goes on to describe all of the benefits of wisdom, such as it's more precious than jewels, it's pleasant, it's like a tree of life. And then he applies, this is what wisdom looks like. And in the application of wisdom, we come to Proverbs 3.27 and 28, where Solomon says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow. I will give it when you have it with you. And the implication is right now. Do mercy now. And I've been walking with Jesus Church for 16 years, and I think I'm only just starting to get some of these things for the first time. I can be a hard man. I'm type A. I value getting things done, and I think that that can be a good quality in leadership because leadership sometimes needs grit and determination and completion. But it can also be a bad quality when we get so consumed with getting things done that we miss the widow in her distress. We've got to learn how to stop. Pause. Prioritize. Say, you know, this is far more important than my little agenda today. James 1.27 Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained 
from the world. We move on to the next part of the story and it reinforces why Jesus is a remarkable Lord. You look at verses 14 and 16 and it tells us that he came up and touched the bearer and the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise, notice it's a single word of command. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. So Jesus is a remarkable Lord because he has final authority. The centurion recognizes that. That's what we're starting to see in this Gospel of Luke. Someone has final authority when they have authority over life and death itself. Because death is the end of things. It's the great showstopper. Uh, all of these threats that we've been talking about drum up such fear within our hearts because our perspective is that it appears that death gets to have the last word. This is why we euphemize it. This is why we separate ourselves from it. We do not wish to look death in the face because it feels so final. But here is what is revolutionary about the gospel. Death doesn't have final authority because Jesus has final authority. He's the author and sustainer of life. He's the one who directs what happens in the life after this life. And we see this clearly in a couple of places, but one important story is the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. If you know the story, you know that Jesus was asked to come and to Bethany where Lazarus is so sick that he's about to die. And Again, that's probably one of those situations where you want to stop everything and just move and get there, right? Only Jesus doesn't this time. This time, Jesus stays where he is for additional days, so much so that when he arrives on the scene at Bethany, he is two days past Lazarus' death. Now Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And you have to understand, Martha's no different than we are. She's seen this death thing a couple of times before. She knows the protocol. She knows that when someone dies, they stay dead. And, and she doesn't expect anything to happen, anything different to happen when Jesus comes head to head with death. But she couldn't be more wrong. So kindly, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha waxes theologically, oh yes, Lord, I know, I know. I know that there will be an end times and I know all of these things, Lord, but, 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 I've got to deal with the present grief, what, what's happening in my heart with this weight that I feel right now. And essentially, Jesus stops her and he says, no, Martha, you are misunderstanding me here right now. And then he proclaims his right and power to enforce obedience even over death itself. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, do you believe this? Now that's a big question. When we look at Martha and 
We looked at the Mary Martha story and we think to ourselves sometimes, ah, oh, she's a little slow on the uptake. But I got to tell you, Martha proclaims a robust confession of Jesus. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Friends, the, the centurion shows us what saving faith looks like. Martha in this passage shows us what saving faith declares. They are saying, Jesus, I've seen enough of your power and authority. I've heard your words. I've weighed the evidence. I've watched people's lives radically change when they place their faith in you. If you say that they can rise from the dead, then Lord, they will rise from the dead. That's a saving kind of faith. And so it all boils down to this this morning, friends. Do you believe that Jesus is a remarkable Lord or do you believe that he's something less than that? You see, the crowd in Luke watches a dead man rise from the plank and they come up short. Verse 16 says, Fear seized them and they glorified God saying, A great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. So they're getting closer, but they're just so far still. Because Jesus is more than a great prophet. He is Lord over life and death itself. Now you can't get there from this passage alone. I hope you understand that. Because Jesus heals the centurion servant and that guy gets up and he lives a full and productive life, so we assume, but then what happens? He dies. The, the widow's son gets off the plank, same story, he dies. Lazarus comes out of the tomb, same story, he dies. So in all of those encounters, it appears that death wins again. But the gospel, the gospel which is history, tells of Jesus dying on the cross, being buried for three days, and rising again from the dead. Only this time, instead of going on to live for a few more decades and then succumbing to death, the Gospel tells us that He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. What do we mean by firstborn from the dead? We mean it in the sense of He is the first who dies, rises from the dead, and He's not dying a second time. He's not going to succumb to death. Death's not going to come knocking on Jesus' door. He has fully and finally conquered death, and he says that if you believe in me, you can share in that life. Now, here's the deal you can go to Israel today. I went there in June. I did not go on this quest that I'm about to tell you about, but say you go on the quest of trying to find the bones of Jesus and you dig up every stone in all of Israel and you look in every tomb. I'm here today to tell you you're not going to find those bones. If you did find the bones, then everything I say this morning is meaningless. This entire faith, worthless. But you're not going to find the bones because witnesses saw the risen Lord. Witnesses saw the Lord ascend. He is at the right hand of the Father. And if Jesus rose from the dead never to die again, then 
everything that Jesus says is the most important thing you will ever contend with. So I need to leave you with a question. Where are you on your spiritual journey? You've heard all of these things about Jesus. Maybe you've been coming to church for a while. But at some point, you have to stop asking and you have to start believing. Some of you here might say, I'm not interested. You know, I'm kind of like just here because I have to be right now. And that's okay. I'm actually really glad you're here and thank you for your time. Some of you are curious. You're weighing Jesus alongside of all kinds of different faiths and philosophies and worldviews. Others are actively seeking. You're starting to say, you know, this whole Christianity thing, it seems to be the real deal and I just, I need to keep exploring this. And some of you, you're ready to make that next step of faith. You're, you're like that centurion. You, you've seen enough of the authority of Jesus, met enough of the people who have been changed by Jesus that now you're starting to say, you know what? I think that I, I might believe this whole thing. And let me ask you that this morning. Are you there? Are you saying to yourself, yes, I've seen enough. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that He rose again from the dead fully and finally. Are you ready to believe that His eternal life could be your eternal life? Well, if you're there this morning, I want to invite you to pray a prayer with me. In fact, in this moment, why don't I just ask all of you to bow your heads and get quiet. Because this is the space right here where we, real life change happens. As we process our faith, as we ask ourselves the question, do I really believe this? This morning, if you're ready to put your faith in Jesus, I just invite you to pray this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that You are the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment. As best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care, your control. Amen. 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 And if you prayed that prayer this morning, praise God for you. But I want to encourage you, be like the centurion and tell someone that you believe in Jesus. And what better way to do that than as we stand together and close with the last song and members are coming forward and asking for prayer with the elders to not come up and just tell me or tell one of the elders that you've trusted Jesus and we'd love to pray with you and tell you about your next steps in faith. So let's close our time together as we stand together and sing.